welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers, and you are here for Season 4 of Wrestling at Random. We are we're officially in the swing of things for Season 4. If you're listening in linear fashion, things are moving, things are going. And as such, whenever we get deep into a season and we have not yet had a show from WCW proper, not the NWA, uh, not TNA trying to be the worst of WCW, but actual WCW, I start to get worried. Then the randomizer pulled this episode of WCW Monday Nitro from 1998, which, Jeremy, you were just telling me before we recorded, and I sort of had that sense uh, as I was watching it that this was quite uh, the inflection point in the Monday Night War, uh, this episode and the time surrounding it. That's right. We are dropping in to an episode of WCW Monday Nitro. Um, if you want to hear about the history of Monday Nitro, go back to the first Nitro we reviewed, and we go through the whole lineage, how we got here, why it was important. All of that's available in the back catalog for our previously reviewed Nitro episodes. Um, in this episode, we're going to drop into April 20th, 1998, Season 4, Episode 16 on the cock, if you're using the Peacock Network. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will tell you where we were in the Monday Night Wars. So this is this is peak Monday Night Wars here in, in April of 1998. Uh, with business, uh, reported by Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. With business on the surface, record-breaking for WCW. The seeds of a disaster were being sown behind the scenes. WCW, which just two months prior was unquestioned the top promotion in the country. We're talking Starcade 97. We're talking uh, early January 98, top promotion in the country. We're talking 83 consecutive weeks of winning uh, the Monday Night Wars. Uh, we should also mention, just as an aside, I don't know if you have this in what, uh, what Dave wrote about, but I remember listening to... Um, I think it was actually Dave and Brian, uh, Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez uh, in a, a Q&A where they talked about during this time period, uh, Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan and Mike Tanay riding together and Tanay and Bobby Heenan telling Tony that, like, we're screwed. Like, <laughs> this is, it, 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 it's, it's on the downswing. And Tony Schiavone didn't see it at all. They were still doing big numbers. Uh, as far as uh, tickets sold, but there were so many signs that things were starting to go bad, even around this point in 1998, that guys like Bobby Heenan and Mike Tanay were seeing the writing on the wall. Yeah, behind the scenes, you had this whole situation with Flair wanting to go see Reed compete. This was in this time period. He wanted to go see him do his amateur wrestling, uh, and there was a huge fallout with Bischoff. And then there's also disgruntled younger uh, wrestlers who are upset with the main event top of the card and lack of opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of uh, the seeds being sown of disaster behind uh, behind the scenes, like Dave said, uh, just a couple of, of a laundry list. There's literally a book by Brian Alvarez about all the things that yes. went wrong with WCW uh, going on behind the scenes at this time. However... They were ahead in the ratings war here, and uh, the the company was was way ahead in television, way ahead in talent, way ahead in names, and way ahead in vision. 
but they have since forgot what got them to the top. And that has been they've the last few months they've been producing stale television since the March 23rd Nitro. Very few good matches. Uh, they got stale with their booking, particularly when it comes to the main event finishes. And they've lost all of their momentum. This combined with the WWF riding an incredible wave of the same momentum saw two weeks of close WCW victories finally catch up to them when the WWF put on an amazing show one week prior to the episode we're about to review on April 13th. Meltzer calls the April 13th Raw one of the hottest 117 minutes of television in company history. It was centered around Austin and McMahon, and it drew its all-time record rating in a competitive situation going head-to-head. It drew a 4.63 rating to Nitro's 4.34 rating. Was that the show that had Mike Tyson on it uh, with the big pull-apart with Steve Austin leading into WrestleMania, or had that already happened? Um, I, I, be- uh, that's, it's, I believe that it already happened. I, can't, uh, I don't know for sure. Because uh, I know that at the that. very least was the show that perception-wise, and I remember yeah. as a kid back then, a teenager back then, um, who is much more of a WCW fan than a WWF fan, I remember watching Nitro and then whatever, like taping and watching Raw after. Like seeing that angle was to me the first time where you really felt like, okay, this is changing. Like as a viewer, not even just looking at the ratings, it's just as a viewer, you got the sense that, wow, the product that wasn't hot is the hot product now. And what can the industry leaders, which strange enough to say back then with WCW, like what can they possibly do? Uh, uh, to capture a similar atmosphere. And for all the reasons you mentioned, uh, it was going to be difficult. Yeah, so they lost that April 13th head-to-head matchup in the ratings. So this April 20th episode was the question, the answer to the question of how would they answer back? <laughs> what would they do to, to try to take over the ratings uh, record as before? So... Uh, the streak of bad nitros ended with this hot nitro on April 20th in Colorado Springs, Colorado before a sellout. Did it? <laughs> There's there. That's how bad the previous weeks were that this, this that's, is, well, I, I hope that this was received or, as a, uh, a hot nitro compared to the previous ones. I mean, there is one particular element of the show that we'll get to, which was great. Like pitch perfect. Yep. Yep, tremendous we'll pro wrestling television. <laughs> but my God, this show made me violently angry uh, at many points throughout. We'll get to it. But no, now I'm terrified that someone is going to uh, join our Patreon and choose one of these Nitros from the immediately preceding <laughs> weeks and, and make us slash have us watch those shows. Because if those were bad enough that this was considered a hot, great this, show. Yes, this was the, yeah, the, this is a hot, great show. Look out. 6,479 paid fans drawing a house of $123,094. The production starts and the show starts. And the first thing I'm reminded of is my biggest frustration with Nitro and WCW in general. And that's that you can never hear the ring announcer ever. Yes. He's broadcasts in the arena. Like when you're there, you can hear David Penzer do the ring announcing. But on television, it's not piped into 
the broadcast. So you yeah, can you're just never hearing hear. the the actual the, the microphones picking up the in arena sound of him doing the ring introduction versus it actually being piped through like it would be on pretty much any other show. No, it's it the the best comparison I can make is not to the ring announcing, but the entrance music on UFC shows where you're not hearing the entrance music, you're hearing what it sounds like in the building. Um, this is much more egregious. It's almost as egregious as the one guy comes out, his music hits, and as his music ends, the other guy's music immediately starts. They all run into each other like it's on a playlist. The guy might not even be in the ring yet. He might still be yes. walking down the aisle, There's and the next guy's <laughs> entrance music will play. Well, it's... That's when you know in this three-hour television show that somebody <laughs> went too long and they're trying to claw back whatever minutes they can. There's one match in particular where I... I I wrote that down in my notes. Uh, we open with footage from the previous night's Spring Stampede pay-per-view where we see Hulk Hogan attacking Kevin Nash with a baseball bat, the disciple, uh, the the Ed Leslie, the former uh, Brutus Beefcake, the former booty man. The uh, former butcher. He's no longer a booty man. He's no longer a butcher. He's no longer a man with no name. Now he's like this wannabe biker inventing aces and eights at least a decade before that existed yeah so he's attacking the macho man randy savage after his match the macho man had won the world title in the match with help from kevin nash defeating sting for the world title uh the nwo in a, ba- it- in a bat match which we'll hear over <laughs> and over them reference uh, throughout this episode of nitro the bat match but they don't actually explain The rules, I assume it was just a match where you're allowed to use Sting's baseball bat. I don't know. Yeah, so the the Macho Man, with Kevin Nash's help, wins the championship. Hulk Hogan and the Disciple attack them, so the NWO is imploding. Scott Norton, of all people, comes out, grabs the championship belt, tries to explain to Hogan that the belt is back with the NWO, and that's all that matters. Scott Norton is the voice of reason between Hulk Hogan and the rest of the NWO. (laughs) Better than the Disciple, I guess. So we're also told that another championship changed hands at Spring Stampede. Raven defeated Diamond Dallas Page to win the United States title at Spring Stampede. Yes, a great feud in WCW during this time period that very heavily cribbed from the Raven-Tommy Dreamer ECW feud, but still very well done. Um, This, whatever, first year or so of Raven in WCW, I actually found really underrated I thought, you know he was sort of in his own world almost like a cody verse of sorts but uh what he was involved with was was always really entertaining and that will certainly not be an exception here on this episode of nitro we open with eric bischoff hulk hogan and the disciple coming out to the iconic nwo theme song is the NWO theme song on your Mount Rushmore or entrance theme songs? I think it's on I think the it's Mount Rushmore of, of most identifiable uh, theme songs. I I was never an NWO guy, and so hearing that music 15 times a show, like so, we heard so, here, so drove me crazy. It's I mean I wouldn't much. even put it's it too much. I wouldn't even put it in the same stratosphere as say. Booker T's Harlem Heat music uh, as one example. But yes, I mean, it is 
uh, I, I hate to throw around the word iconic, but it is an iconic entrance game. It, it absolutely is. It gets way overplayed here. Uh, we, uh, I hear it once, I'm excited uh, because I, I think it's a perfect. It's it's a perfect song to tell you exactly who the NWO is, who the the, the personalities are. There, it's a it sets the tone for what's about to. It's a it's a great it's a great theme song, uh, except when you hear it seventy five times, which we will hear. Well, particularly when you not only hear it seventy five times, but when you hear it for. Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, that's one thing. And then when Brian Adams and Vincent come out and they have the same NWO theme song, that is why the wrestling gods created the NWO B-Team theme song. Um, and it was very disappointing that that we did not have that pathetic, lame, but perfectly fitting uh, version of the NWO theme song here for, for guys to battle. Hogan says that the Macho Man is the scum that crawls in the rivers of hell. Okay. This was so over the top, but as Hulk Hogan lines go, I actually thought that was great. Um, we then descend into um, 90s wrestling insults, Hogan calling Savage Nash's girlfriend. Okay, whatever. That's Hogan being Hogan. Um, Eric Bischoff calls Kevin Nash a midget, which is odd. Um, yeah, this just... I don't know. It's, I, I these I was always so frustrated with these nitros where we'd open, which you know we'd open with them at the desk, kind of recapping what happened on the pay per view or the previous week, and then we'd just have a a rambling Hogan Eric Bischoff promo to start. This did actually have a little bit more of a point, considering it was going to set up a show long storyline. But still, it's Hogan and Bischoff doing Hogan and Bischoff things. Yeah, basically he's. He says he's the leader of the NWO. He wants a shot at the title. Um, the the crowd is very anti Hogan, um, and they're they're planting the seeds for the NWO split. Uh, and so it's basically who's the leader? Is it uh, Hogan, Macho Man, Kevin Nash? And we'll see as the show or Scott progresses. Norton maybe who knows? Scott Norton showing the most leadership of all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, by far the locker room leader, the clubhouse <laughs> captain, so to speak. Here, uh, Scott Norton. We then see Goldberg getting ready in the locker room as we go to break. As Goldberg will challenge the new United States champion Raven coming up later on in the show. I am greatly amused by how long it takes Goldberg to warm up. He is <laughs> he is aggressively stretching and shadow boxing for at least an hour. We hear the NWO theme again this time. It's the world's champion Macho Man Randy Savage. Well, it's He's... the NWO theme with an ooh yeah at the start, <laughs> so you know it's Randy Savage. That's basically the differentiator. That everybody in the company has the same music, but they have a one second sounder at the beginning to tell you who it is. He says he came here for a fight. There's one coward in the building, and the worst kept secret in wrestling is that I hate Hulk Hogan in life and in death. (laughs) (laughs) He also calls himself the NWO world champion. This is during that weird time period where WCW seemed to be toying with the idea of changing its name to nwo slash wcw or outright nwo like you actually see that in a lot of the promotional materials from that time is they don't just call themselves wcw the nwo is part of the at least marketing wise official name of the company 
Yeah, so he introduces the new leader of the NWO, and that's big, sexy Kevin Nash. Nash comes out to join Savage in the ring. Nash says, Hogan, last night was step one for the end of your career. You can't call I'm the sorry, NWO but yours. none of this matters. None of this matters to me as much as Kevin Nash's entrance, in which he comes out drinking a cup of coffee, casually sets it on... <laughs> The W in the WCW steel girder logo in the uh, uh, in the entranceway. And as he walks out, it is clear that he is wearing just this ridiculous Reebok tracksuit and an NWO hat. Zero Fs given by Kevin Nash here, as is uh, as is his uh, customary nature. He then gives, though, by his standards, a really fiery promo. He's going to powerbomb Disciple or Bischoff if they get involved. And we head to the backstage area where Raven's in a locker room, shower area. He talks about Goldberg being 74-0. Says he'll beat him, quote the Raven, nevermore. Yes, he says he will not be number 75. Uh, I also loved, you mentioned uh, in the Nash promo, him referencing powerbombing Bischoff. He says, remember Baltimore Weatherman, which is a reference to uh, Great American Bash 1996, where Kevin Nash powerbombed the then babyface head of WCW, Eric Bischoff, off the stage. Um, he also, he uh, just him threatening uh, the disciple here. Everything about the disciple on this show is unintentionally hilarious because Hogan is trying to make it sound like disciple is some real legitimate threat to Kevin Nash and then Nash just so dismissively um, casting the idea of uh, disciple putting him down aside um, just just great unintentional comedy the Nitro girls are out dancing after commercial we're told to send in your videotapes for your Nitro parties uh, I had pay-per-view parties at my house I did not quite have Nitro parties, but I did watch Nitro with friends. I would go to their apartment, and we would watch Nitro. Uh, we would flip between Nitro and Raw on commercials. And, uh, yeah, that was that was most definitely something I did uh, was go to friends' houses for Nitros. But we never had a party. We had big pay-per-view parties. Uh, yes. The, yeah, the, the largest and last pay-per-view party I hosted was Starcade. 98 and uh <laughs> after the finish of starcade 98 uh that was the last large pay-per-view party i hosted for many years uh the, the attendance <laughs> dropped I... off uh they they left wcw they also left coming to parties at my apartment i was gonna say yeah your uh, your paper wcw pay-per-view party attendance numbers mirrored uh the, the trajectory uh, the trend line the graph of what happened for wcw my favorite part about this is the idea that you would send your Nitro Party tapes to the CNN Center as they were the uh, uh, the corporate sisters of WCW under the Turner umbrella. Like the idea of an intern working at like the news office at CNN, like getting videotapes of like major news stories sent to them and then they have to sift through somebody's Nitro Party uh, as well. Um, I just that, that brought me great joy. We'll see later on the biggest Nitro Party ever. But before that, I'm sure, well, before that, we've got still more not wrestling. Yeah. We go to Gene Okerlund in the entranceway um, to shill the hotline. Then finally, um, the NWO music the hotline, hits. hotline, by the way, is $2 per minute. 
So just to, to, it, <laughs> just to remind in 1998, people. In the spring of 1998, $2 per minute, children, get your parents' permission to call 1-900-909-9900. The number's still For, burned in my brain. That oh, and, uh, forever. Empire carpeting. Uh, yeah, those, are the those two, two things... <laughs> And the uh, the Victory Auto Records commercial will sure. probably be what play in my mind when I die, like just to <laughs> troll me at the very end of life. Um, we finally get wrestling. The NWO music hits once again. It is not Hulk Hogan. It is not Randy Savage. It is not even Kevin Nash. It is the natural duo of Conan and the former Virgil, Vincent. And who will Conan be wrestling here? Gentleman Chris Adams, and I submit that only I could give you this factoid. Chris Adams and Conan were on opposite sides of a tag team match in WCW at Starcade 90 in the Pat O'Connor International Memorial ah. Tag Team Tournament. I believe the first round of that tournament, as it was Conan and Rey Mysterio Sr. defeating... Uh, I can't, actually can't remember who won. I apologize. But taking on the team of Gentleman Chris Adams and Norman Smiley. Wow. So here, some eight years later, they meet again a half hour into Nitro, the first match on this show. Yeah, Chris Adams in WCW 1998. The hell? <laughs> we're 30 minutes in before we get our first match because this is the unopposed first hour of nitro so there you go that's why there's nothing but talking there's nothing going on uh except for uh not wrestling we'll tell you what else isn't going on in addition to there not being wrestling once this match starts and this will be the theme of the show throughout the announcers could not be bothered to acknowledge that there was a pro wrestling match going on. No, there were plenty yeah. of matches that the only purpose they served is so they could talk about the matches coming up later. And uh, this is... It's weird. This show, in a lot of ways, it was so much more frustrating than what I'm about to describe. But this felt a lot more like an old territory studio show than it felt like an episode of Nitro. In that you almost had no hot matches. Most of the matches had... No relevance whatsoever. You had a ton of promos. The matches were super short. And the only purpose they served was for the announcers to do uh, an early version of a podcast talking about the NWO strife. That's all this match was. The match uh, basically consisted of Conan winning with the DDT and the Tequila Sunrise submission. Pretty short very short we then go backstage and see goldberg he still is shadow boxing and he's slapping himself uh we come back from commercial the nitro girls are dancing again this is where we see the nitro party video uh this is the biggest nitro party ever at the football stadium for clemson university they're showing nitro on a very rudimentary big screen tv there's some unidentified masked man acting as the host as dumb as these nitro party videos were they actually served a purpose which was to show how popular wcw monday nitro was particularly among young people among what would now be called the key demographic yeah i mean the colleges watching nitro was a 
a big deal. Like people, yeah. like it, so many fans of that time. If you if if you're talking to fans in 2022 that that remember the Monday Night War, they'll say, "Oh yeah, I was in college. We never missed it." And, yeah, they watched and, it. At their, it was at, at their frat house, and yeah. you see that not only on these Nitro Party videos, but when you see the actual crowds on WCW Monday Nitro, it's so different from modern wrestling in terms of who's there and you know and what they're doing and how they're acting and those are the arenas that they would hit too so they'd hit the major arenas you'd get the georgia dome shows the united centers in chicago but then they'd also hit the college campuses and it would be a hot ticket and a hot crowd so here here we are for our our second match jimmy hart comes out with the barbarian uh his opponent already in the ring wayne bloom Wayne Bloom, the former Blake Beverly, is here in WCW in 1998 uh, to wrestle Barbarian. I can only imagine this was like a long, uh, it's like the future considerations uh, in an MLB trade where some two years earlier, Bo Beverly, that being Mike Enos, was in uh, the segment that led to Scott Hall showing up and kicking off the NWO angle. Some two years later, here's his tag partner, Wayne Bloom, taking on the Barbarian. Wayne Bloom gets zero offense. You would have no idea this guy had ever been a pushed wrestler in his life. Um, The only thing that I noticed during this match is that I'm wondering if Eddie Kingston was here on this show because there's a huge D's nuts sign in the crowd. There's nothing a, about respect though. No, no. Uh, Barbarian wins with a big boot to the face. Uh, very quick squash match. Now back to Raven uh, in the back. He comes from hate and pain and he reminds Goldberg that his streak will be over. After commercial, we get our first actual match, uh, competitive match of the of the show. WCW Cruiserweight Champion Chris Jericho comes out. He comes out. And this is one of those things, maybe more than anything on any of these things that have been on the network slash Peacock, where there's dubbed music. Talk about a mind blank. Chris Jericho, 1998, WCW. And he comes out to his Break the Walls Down WWF entrance music. This just felt so weird. It was so weird that they overdubbed that. And I was trying to think back to the, I'm like, was that licensed music? Why did they not have his old? Why were they not allowed to use the old Lionheart music? It was it uh, was stock music. It was it was the unless the idea was that eventually that stock music um, had been because it wasn't it basically like a very 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 close knockoff of a Pearl Jam song. And I'm wondering if eventually that that stock music had been deemed to be too close to the original. And it couldn't be used. See DDP's music as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Nirvana song. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that must be what happened. They overdubbed his WWF music, like you mentioned. Uh, Jericho in the ring has an easel with a poster <laughs> of Dean Malenko. How I love Chris Jericho during this time. So period. great. So great. He's got an update for us uh, on Dean. Dean has retired from wrestling. Uh, Dean has an interview to work at Harry's Burgers and Jericho uh, we're told he's collecting trophies. So he's holding the mask of Juventud Guerrera. He's wearing the wrap of Chris, uh, of a uh, Prince Iakea. The Mahi Mahi as it was called. And uh, 
And then his opponent comes out, Juventud Guerrera, and Juvi runs wild before the bell. Goes nuts, hits a top rope Frankensteiner by Juvi. Juvi jumps up for Arana, but Jericho throws him off, and Juvi gets clotheslined over the top rope. Meanwhile, the announcers are not talking about this match at all. This is a all action. hot cruiser not talking cruiserweight about. title match, all action. Chris Jericho, um, even though he wasn't pushed as such, a big star in WCW by this point, one of the more over guys. Hoovy super over as a high flying baby face, now unmasked. Cruiserweight championship. Like you said, a hot start. Hoovy running wild. Um, but the announcers are don't even acknowledge the ridiculous praying mantis walk that Chris Jericho did, which I believe this taunt here is actually in revenge back in the day. I had totally forgotten that this was one of Jericho's wacky taunts back then, along with the come on baby pin, but not even that could get an acknowledgement out of Tony Schiavone and crew. Jericho goes for the uh, springboard and it looks like a cross body. But uh, yeah, the flying shoulder block he would do off that springboard. If he didn't do the drop kick uh, where he stays in the ring as his opponent's on the apron comes off the second rope, he would do that flying shoulder block where he'd wildly go over the top of the floor. But Hoovy ducks and talk about wildly going to the floor. Jericho crashes and burns. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. He goes just flying over the top to the floor, completely missing. Hoovy with a somersault dive over the top to the floor on Jericho. Uh, springboard spinning heel kick back in the ring gets a two count a great reaction from the crowd here the crowd is so into this again compared to the other stuff we've seen so far on the show Hoovy flips up into a ddt the only way i can describe it is you know the way sometimes guys will run towards someone and kind of forward flip up the guy's body and then come back with a rana Hoovy does that here, but into a DDT. This was, again, I always go back to the N64 games. This was his finisher in Revenge, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but only two here. Mike Tanay, we should mention, was fantastic on the call in this match. He's so much better suited in this role than being the main play-by-play guy. Kind of like in modern times, how Tony Schiavone is so much better suited being in that role than he is as a main play-by-play guy at, at that point. But yes, that hot DDT, action here. Yeah, that DDT was a great near fall. The, the, the place went crazy for it. Uh, you know, Again, this is the first real action they've gotten, and it is hot all action. Hoovy tries a Rana, but Jericho counters into the Lion Tamer. This was really, really impressive looking. And he puts on a Lion Tamer perfectly executed, Hoovy's stuck in it for a while. Can't he really it. sits down on it. His neck is bent in a really disgusting angle. And like you said, this goes on for, even though this is a short match, this particular part of the match with, with Hoovy being stuck in the Lion Tamer and progressively getting bent back more and more and more, this goes on for a good period of time before Hoovy finally passes out. The ref calls that he does not submit. And Mike Tanay makes a point to say that. Um, but yes, Chris Jericho wins, retains the cruiserweight title. This was so short uh, compared to what you would like it to be. And I feel like what it would normally be on an episode of Nitro, much less a pay-per-view. But what we had here was awesome, and the crowd was uh, was very much into it. And a great way to finish hour number one as we head into hour number two of the show. Fireworks, because you got to have pyro here. Uh, the other thing we should note, it's the end of hour one. 
Bill Goldberg is still prepping backstage. He has somehow not thrown out both of his shoulders. He has not accidentally slapped himself in the face and knocked himself out. He is still shadow boxing, though. So remember, this is the first thing that's going to go head to head with Raw. It's yes. Michael Buffer doing ring introductions for the U.S. title match. For the he says for the first of two times tonight, let's get ready to rumble in Michael Buffer voice. The U.S. champion Raven comes out first to no music. With that U.S. title belt that we've talked about before, I so often associate with the early 90s, the likes of Lex Luger, Rick Rude holding it, and it always throws me to see it on Nitro here as late as 1998, but it's very cool to see Raven holding this belt. Goldberg comes out. There's no security police escort. We don't see him coming through the backstage area. He just appears for a normal ring entrance. I don't know what Michael Buffer was doing here. I guess, did anyone not know that Bill Goldberg was from Atlanta, Georgia? He says, hometown unknown. Wait, Wait, unknown. unknown. No, these are two known things. We're very, very known. But then he ends it cool where he says, his record, we all know, 74-0. It was like he had a, a good idea for the end of a punchline. Everything to get there didn't make sense, but he just no. kept it because he really liked that last part. Um, it's also very strange here when you think about how much Bobby Heenan was a part of getting Bill Goldberg over. And really, in some ways, it was the last thing in pro wrestling that Bobby Heenan was passionate about was Bill Goldberg and how over Bill Goldberg was and, and really trying to elevate that as much as possible. Bobby Heenan is not on the call here. It is still the first hour crew of Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Larry Zabisco. As soon as Goldberg comes out, he does get all the pyro. And they do yes. a, great, oh, yes. a great job with that entrance. They they pan out to the crowd, and there are so many Goldberg signs. Like, there's oh no way to look at this and be like, oh, we've got the hottest thing going here. Like, this is incredible how much people were well, so into this. People talk about it, and rightfully so. Like, Bill Goldberg being this hot and being this over was the best and worst thing to happen to WCW. It was great, obviously. He's over. He's selling tickets. People want to see him. But he got over right at the time where all the cracks are starting to show at WCW, and they're starting to do all the wrong things. But because they got one thing right in Bill Goldberg, people were going to shows, they were watching shows, they wanted to see it. And so that allowed WCW to not acknowledge any of the things they were doing wrong and think things would just keep going the way they were forever. And who knows? Maybe if Sarkay 98 didn't happen the way it was, maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Maybe all the mistakes they made wouldn't have mattered. Um, but it's it's interesting to see a show that, You can see so many of the things that were starting to go wrong, but then here's this oasis of everything right in in Bill Goldberg. The match starts with the place going nuts for Goldberg. Raven lays the belt down in the middle of the ring, and then Raven bull rushes Goldberg into the corner. Goldberg whips Raven to the other corner. Raven catches him with a boot to the face as Goldberg charges in. Drop kick by Raven, and Goldberg is dumped outside. A great drop kick by Raven. This is one of those guys you don't expect to do great drop kicks, but he does not because he's a huge guy like we've talked about before, but he's just not a high flyer. Like This is a Dustin Rhodes-style drop kick here from Raven. 
Yeah, we then uh, Goldberg throws Raven hard into the barricade a oh. few times. Twice which... hard, like trying to put him through the uh, through the barricade. Tony Schiavone tells us this is Raven's rules, which means there are no rules. Uh, back in the ring, a rolling knee bar by Goldberg, which was always cool. A bit of early MMA style stuff here uh, from Bill Goldberg. And then we see Bill Goldberg throw a super kick, which I can never see without thinking of the end of Bret Hart's functional career as a wrestler. That's right. Raven's outside. Goldberg follows him out. Raven hits him with a steel chair. Back inside, Raven with the drop toe hold, and Goldberg goes face first into the chair. And does he ever? You cannot say that Bill Goldberg didn't take things 100 miles an hour for whatever you can say about how much he, how hard he went, and sometimes that he hurt guys. He takes this face first. And Mike Tanay has a great line talking about how, uh, or maybe it was Tony that says that we've seen Bill Goldberg in every scenario. He's come through with flying colors, no matter what style of wrestler he's faced, but he's never been hit with weapons before. Goldberg able to kick out at two. Raven puts on a chin lock and Raven sends Goldberg into the corner, clotheslines him, and now he starts to have no effect. Goldberg starts hulking up here. This was also where I noticed for the first time that a very itchy Billy Kidman and Sick Boy, members of the flock, were sitting front row. So that will will play into what happens momentarily. Goldberg is not phased by the punches. He explodes with a spear, and this place loses their minds. They're going nuts. They lose their minds. Raven takes this spear so great. He kind of jumps into it a little bit, like the way Bubba Ray Dudley jumps into a top rope crossbody to sell it. Great stuff here. Uh, And and from this point forward, uh, things just get crazy. The flock runs in. Goldberg is killing these dudes with impunity. Horace Hogan, the newest member of the flock, is in with a stop sign. He gets speared. Big Ron Reese is in. Goldberg fights him off and hits the biggest jackhammer you've ever seen. This may have been even more impressive than the jackhammers he hit on the Giants, the big show back then. Um, Goldberg, a freakishly strong guy. Raven tries to leave through the crowd, but the fans, quote unquote, pick him up and throw him back over the guardrail. It was a super cool looking spot. That was was great. Probably Uh, the best, like, fans as plants forcing a wrestler back into the ring type of spot i've ever seen this was awesome it just it was a wave of emotion this whole point from the the moment that goldberg hits the spear and the flock jumps in like it's just perfect pro wrestling another spear in the ring jackhammer by goldberg he gets the pin new united states champion goldberg he's 75 and 0 and this was awesome and this match uh, as is traditionally the death spot for WCW. Uh, it drew a 5.7 rating wow. against a 3.7 rating for Vince McMahon and Dude Love in the Love Shack. <laughs> so that was the head-to-head segment. Wow. Uh, so yeah, definitely the people watching at home, uh, the potential audience at home found this just as compelling as the uh, as the in-arena crowd. Tony Schiavone was great here in the post-match screaming, Give that man the belt. They did a great job, very un-WCW-like in terms of doing a great job showing the crowd, showing Goldberg celebrating, really letting it linger and and sink in that this was a huge deal. 
Um, the only blemish on the commentary for this was uh, Larry Zabisco trying his damnedest, but ending this whole segment by saying Goldberg is the United States champion of the world. To show you uh, how much interest there was in Goldberg, when this match was over, the WCW rating fell from 5.7 to 4.6 for our next match. And then uh, uh, at the same time, WWF's rating went from a 3.7 all the way up to a 4.5. So So everybody changed the channel. Goldberg was the thing, the one hot thing still in WCW at this point. Uh, They tried, though, to keep that momentum going coming after the commercial break where they showed a replay of Goldberg winning the title, slow motion with his music playing in the background, again trying to hammer home how important this was. The announcers talking about this being one of the most memorable moments not only in Nitro history but WCW history. It's the last we're really here about, though, because here come the Nitro girls, and now it's time for another wrestling match where all the announcers do is talk about Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage in the NWO. It's La Parka versus a babyface Ultimo Dragon without Sonny Ono. It's fun stuff here, a sh- short match, but man, it just you're just telling your audience, don't bother watching this, it doesn't matter, when you've got the announcers blathering on and on about other stuff like they were here. Very frustrating. Yeah, a couple of highlights. LaParca with a top rope dive to the floor to give him the advantage. Uh, LaParca off the top with a flying nothing, but Dragon got his feet up to kick him in the face. I know that's one of your favorite spots. <laughs> yes, uh, I also want to mention just going back to the uh, – that is one of my favorite spots, an Arn Anderson special here in 1998 <laughs> with LaParca and Ultimo Dragon. Maybe the most like the most indicative thing of uh, what I talked about earlier about the commentary – here in this match, a huge planche of, uh, from La Parca. Tony Schiavone is going still on and on and on about Hogan and Savage in the middle of his long run-on sentence about Hogan Savage and the NWO. He stops, says, oh, big move, and then goes back to his run-on sentence about Hogan Savage and the NWO. Um, it's... Uh, I don't know. It was oh, yeah. This also the best thing about this match, which you'll mention what happens towards the finish. But there's a move that Tony Schiavone calls the flying body attack. Yo, My I favorite. Have Tony all, I have it all in capital letters here too. Yeah, yeah we so. had it a couple times tonight actually. Uh, Dragon fights back. Eddie and Chavo Guerrero sneak down the aisle. Chavo hits Ultimo Dragon from behind. We get the top rope flying body attack, and Laparca gets the win. Yes, as a torneo of sorts from La Parca that gets called a flying body attack. <laughs> the story here was that Eddie wanted Chavo to cheat. Chavo's been trying to resist, but apparently now Eddie's got some hold over him and uh, he's going to cheat. Um, there's this great t-shirt that I think it's like, what's it say? Eddie Guerrero is my favorite wrestler. Uh, it says on the shirt that Eddie's, basically Eddie's making Chavo wear this shirt. So it's, in some ways it's kind of, uh, a prototype version of what we'll see with Eddie and Chavo later on uh, in the WWE. But in any event, good action here. Always love seeing Ultimo and uh, LaParca, but it's just such a frustrating afterthought because we've got to go to stills from Spring Stampede, the same stills that we saw earlier in the first hour we're seeing here now. Our next match in the ring is Chris Benoit taking on the NWO's Kurt Hennig, accompanied by Rick Rude who quickly goes to commentary 
bringing back memories of Rick Rude and Joey Styles on commentary in ECW briefly. Um, the most, I don't know, the thing, nothing really interesting happens with it, but it's just funny to see uh, Tony Schiavone and on one side, Bobby Heenan, and on the other side, Rick Rude, who Bobby Heenan used to manage. Yeah, this was uh, this was all Benoit attacking the injured knee of Hennig. Uh, Benoit calls out Rick Rude. He makes his way down to the ring. Hennig uh, dumps Benoit outside, and Rude impressively drops him throat first across the guardrail. Throws some forearms, some clubbing blows, gets in the ring and throws some knees. This must have been the point where Rick Rude was training for a comeback. Um, you know, after obviously he had to retire the back injury, the match in Japan was sting. Um, he would eventually, you know, sadly, tragically pass away, but there was a point where he was aggressively trying to come back. And I was, I was taken aback here. I had forgotten that we got any Rick rude physicality, um, at this point where he was sort of a manager of sorts for, uh, for Kurt Hennig. Yeah. Finish comes with, uh, Benoit countering a perfect plex into a crossface. Rude jumps in, attacks Benoit. Booker T, the television champion, comes out to make the save for Benoit. Benoit tells Booker to stay out of his business. Booker and Benoit fight to the back as we go to commercial. I believe this was in the midst of that awesome best of seven series that Benoit and Booker T had, which really, while Booker T was the TV champ at that point, really helped elevate Booker T into being like a legitimate singles guy. As always, it's never not weird uh, talking about Chris Benoit here on the show, watching Chris Benoit matches. There's a lot of universes where a Chris Benoit, Kurt Henning match would have and could have been incredible. Sadly, uh, this night and the structure of this show here, it was not going to lend to that being the case whatsoever. Mean jeans in the ring. He calls out the commissioner, Rowdy Roddy Piper. He says the title match tonight will be a no disqualifications, but no allow no one's allowed to run in. So there will be no run-ins, uh, but it'll be a no disqualification match. They will fight until we have a winner. Van Hammer comes out to no music, which is weird. Uh, yes, he should be playing himself out to the ring <laughs> with a guitar. But yes, it is Raven's Flock. Uh, vintage Van Hammer, who was awesome to play as again in WCW NWO Revenge for the N64. Um, it's Van Hammer against Saturn in an intra flock squabble, which I found interesting and amusing given that this whole show is about the NWO not getting along. And then we have the mid card heel group, the flock, also not getting along. I thought for what this was, and again, the announcers don't talk about this match at all the entire time. They had a hell of a brawl. Perry Saturn was awesome back then. Van Hammer, by Van Hammer Sanders, I thought looked perfectly fine here, verging on good. He uh, Nothing was ever going to happen with him, but he was a better Van Hammer than he was in 1991 in WCW, that's for sure. Yeah, they brawl everywhere. They fight up the aisle. The ref calls for a double countout. And then we start hour three with more pyro. And we get horrible overdub music for the public enemy. Ugh. Um, I, I think this was actually their music back then. Was it really? Oh, yes. They're, it was public enemy. Not so, good. No, they're they're bad. They're, I'm not a guy who ever got 
Public Enemy, like what on the ECW I, I stuff love, we've watched, on the WCW I stuff we watched. I loved Public Enemy back then. I was the guy who hated the Nasty Boys and loved Public Enemy. Oh, oh I, I, I don't, I never got it. Don't get it now. It didn't age particularly well. I don't dislike them as much as you do, particularly. I always have a, a soft spot for Rocco Rock, but they were such a odd fit, such an odd fit for the bright lights, literally and figuratively, of WCW. I did want to go back just briefly at the end of the Hammer Saturn match when they're starting to go again talking about the all the NWO stuff. Um, Bobby Heenan changes the subject to Goldberg, and he makes a prediction. Uh, which I also think is a booking suggestion that he was not so subtly giving at that sure. point, um, saying that Goldberg will retire undefeated. And I feel like that was Bobby Heenan's way of saying, I hear you guys talking about beating Goldberg sometime in the not cosmically distant future. That's dumb. Don't do Don't that. Don't do that. <laughs> um, after... Uh... So this match, we, okay. So their opponents it's are the NWO Scott against... Steiner and Buff Bagwell from the NWO. So more NWO music. Uh, it's early Scott Steiner having joined the NWO. Like he still is a little more athletic than he would be later. He's wearing a white, like neoprene singlet. Uh, the entire story of the Buff Bagwell Scott Steiner team is that they like to flex and they will outflex each other. And sometimes that makes them not get along. The only fashion corner note I have on Public Enemy and really the only note I have on this match is that Johnny Grunge's hockey jersey says violent Mac Daddy on the back. Rocco Rock's hockey jersey says naughty Mac Daddy. Public Enemy, we're told, I'm told, is a former world tag team champion. So I have no memory of that happening. What um, a world where Public Enemy won the world tag titles and the Blue Bloods didn't. <laughs> so... Uh, Pretty much a squash. It went way longer than you wanted it to. Finish yeah. comes with Public Enemy putting themselves through a table as Buff moved. And then... Uh, oh, this table crunches gloriously. This is like the the ASMR of table breaks. <laughs> if you like the sound of table breaking, you will get some enjoyment out of this. This is a thicker, non-like what you would normally think of as like a wrestling table. And it, it just cracks and crunches beautifully. Um, this was the drive-by that Public Enemy would use as their finisher that, or, or their sort of put the guy through the table and maybe get disqualified and maybe win. But I feel like they hit it maybe 10% of the time on their opponents and usually just put, put themselves through the table most of the time. Horrible. Buff wins with a blockbuster. <laughs> this match was lame. The Nitro Girls are out after commercial, and now we get... And during the Nitro Girls dance, Tony Schiavone says once again... And you will not believe it, I'm sure, that he said this. This may go down as the biggest night in the history of professional wrestling. The meme is real, folks. <laughs> That's right. If you had that on your bingo card, uh, you're yelling. You're on the floor right yeah. now. Drunk. WCW television title match. The challenger Psychosis versus the TV champion Booker T. Booker had 80% of this match. This was a really fun match, though. By the standards of this show, I thought it was really good, particularly the first six or seven minutes. There were a few communication issues as the match went on. One in particular where, like, Booker T. Irish whipped Psychosis. I think he expected Psychosis to duck under a clothesline. Psychosis didn't. So the clothesline sort of half happened, and the next minute or so was them trying to figure out, hey, should we do that spot again? They probably heard me screaming from my home as a 17-year-old. 
don't redo the spots. Never redo the spot. Just move on from the botch and go on. Um, but good stuff uh, as a whole. I also loved how we had a spinning body attack call here from Tony Schiavone. A bit of a variation uh, on his normal call. Um, but- hits the most violent Alabama slam style spine buster I've oh. ever seen. This was this is, violent. You hear sometimes people jokingly, sometimes not jokingly say that that variation of a spine buster should be banned. It should be outlawed the way pile drivers were both in kayfabe and legitimately. You would see this and think, you know, that's not so bad of an idea. Also in this match, while this action is going and it's very good, Tony Schiavone as the continuity editor of professional wrestling, the role that he plays in AEW, uh, here we get a little bit of that in WCW in 1998. As he muses out loud, if the main event between Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage is no disqualification, how can run-ins not be allowed? 100%. I was howling with laughter uh, at Tony Schiavone pointing Tony Schiavone out the, was the fans. Here. Yeah, they were the fans asking the same questions. Uh, and he said this multiple times uh, uh, leading into that match. Psychosis takes an incredible bump for the Harlem sidekick. I was super impressed here. This this match is, is cooking. This is a lot of fun. Booker wins after a top rope missile drop kick. Still the television champion. This had to get relatively close to the 10 minute time limit. We didn't hear time calls. Tony did point out TV title we, matches. We are don't 10 hear minutes. anything because no. Pens- <laughs> like I didn't even know this was a TV title match. If the actual <laughs> broadcast team didn't tell me because I can't hear yes. David Penzer. <laughs> the NWO's Brian Adams comes out with Vincent. Uh, like to the CWO music that Future big B-team. stars came out to earlier. He did not come B-team out to that. Members here. I believe the NWO B-team music, which would come later, went like, do, 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 over <laughs> and over for about a minute and a half. That was much more appropriate than the NWO uh, legit theme song. But here comes Lex Luger to rescue yeah. this segment. His classic WCW entrance music, huge fireworks. And Bobby Heenan during this entrance says that he is having, meaning himself, uh, having the best time of his life in wrestling thanks to WCW, which either he's – this must have been the last day that he had a really good time in WCW because all I heard after this was was how much he hated his time in WCW. No, he was just drunk enough to be having a great time here tonight. Uh, Hey, he's on a better plan than I think everybody else on this show then. A uh, couple of highlights in this match. Luger tries a babyface splash. So, of course, Brian yeah, Adams got yes. the knees up. Uh, I, all caps, I have Lex Luger goes for a non-fat guy, babyface standing splash, and Brian Adams gets the knees up. Wrestling <laughs> physics win once again. I also love, talk about wrestling physics, or maybe more accurately, wrestling physiology. Lex Luger with the groin of steel inexplicably no sells an inverted atomic drop from brian adams adams presses luger over his head into a gut buster yeah this came out of nowhere this is like the non-top rope version of the awesome dean malenko top rope gut buster to to ray mysterio did not expect to see brian adams do that to lex luger vincent gets in the ring luger puts him in the torture rack conan hits the ring he gets put in the torture rack as well Luger hits Brian Adams with the bionic forearm, and Luger gets the pin. 
My only takeaway from the last minute of this match is how was none of this a disqualification? This is not the main event where run-ins are barred. I can, I can only assume that it's because uh, nobody like hurt Luger. Like if you, he, was putting, he get... was putting all of them in in torture. If it, it didn't lead to a uh, uh, any violence against him, so. that's actually a really good point. And that also is if you go back to when Luger defeated Hogan for the world title a year earlier on Nitro. When everybody ran out and Luger fought them off, Tony Schiavone made that exact point again as the continuity editor, the voice of the fans, saying that Luger fought all of them off. So that's why it wasn't a disqualification. That's why I was able to win the belt. So good point. Yeah, it's it's not like it's consistent. So like another no. match, someone could come in and that could not happen. It could be a disqualification. And then you're pulling For your sure. hair out Particularly because here in... that's WCW. Uh, yes. So we're back in the ring with Michael Buffer again. Hulk Hogan and the Disciple come out first. Hogan grabs the microphone. He says, my Viper's out back. I'm going to make a speed bump out of you. Come out and meet the leader of the NWO. We go to commercial break from there. Again, they're dragging this out as much as possible to try to get the biggest rating possible here. Uh, The NWO music is still playing. I did at this point note that I think think and i could be wrong i think hogan's entrances most likely actually had uh voodoo child the iconic Jimi hendrix song i think the nwo entrance music was overdubbed onto that here so maybe there wasn't quite as much in arena and original broadcast nwo music overkill but either way the nwo music is playing this time it's the oh yeah and here comes randy savage he's limping his arm is taped Michael Buffer is practically doing a podcast about the career of Randy Savage as Savage slowly makes his way to the ring. Buffer sounded like he was introducing Mick Foley, the way he talks about (laughs) this man coming out, being known for his reckless abandon. Yes. Uh, Here's here's Michael Buffer. And now, ladies and gentlemen, coming to the ring, wearing black, trimmed white, weighing 238 and one quarter pounds. From Sarasota, Florida, known for his over-the-top, anything-goes, all-out, take-no-prisoner's style of reckless abandonment and his total disregard for personal safety. Last night, in a history-making event, he captured the heavyweight world title belt. And now... Tonight, he lays it all on the line. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the undisputed WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World, Macho Man Randy Savage. Never before in the history of this grand sport have these two men who have met on big events and big rings, big venues, and major world title bouts met for anything any more important than what they're meeting for right now. You fans have followed their careers, I know, for years. This is their biggest night. And you're witnessing- WCW Heavyweight Championship. Match begins. Uh, Savage is moving horribly here, and I looked it up in the uh, Observer Newsletter. Savage is legit hurt and needs a ton of uh, surgeries. Lots of them. He's a mess. So, so they had these, these worked angles, or these worked injuries 
were done to sort of explain away the legitimate hobbling of Randy Savage. And the way that this... Uh, that, that's when you put the world title on, on a guy, by the way. When he needs multiple <laughs> surgeries, it's time to put the belt on him. And, and it explains why Hogan takes so much of this match, because yeah. we've seen Savage carry Hogan to watchable to good matches in the past. Um, this well, think is, about WrestleMania five, well, which WrestleMania by the way, five is amazing. Tony Schiavone, uh, never one to shy away from hyperbole says, quote, this is without a doubt the biggest match. These two men have ever had against each other. False, false, very false. Um, so yeah, Hogan, uh, he's in control early. He's, uh, He's choking Savage. Nick Patrick tries to pull him off for no reason because, again, it's no disqualification. This drives me nuts. Oh, I hate that. Or when there's rope breaks in no disqualification <sighs> matches? No. Hogan Which dumps- we have that here as well. Yeah, Hogan sends him to the floor. The Disciples attacking Savage, ramming him into the guardrail. Is he, though? <laughs> Is the Disciple attacking Randy Savage? Because what I saw was the Disciple somewhat aggressively hugging the knee of Randy Savage for an uncomfortable period of time before then uh, uh, throwing into the post. But Tony Schiavone is acting like Disciple has like a bone saw and is cutting <laughs> the leg of, of Randy Savage off. And just the, the dissonance of that reaction from Tony Schiavone as the Disciple is hugging Savage's knee is just too much for me. After a Hogan chair shot, they're back in the ring. Savage fights back with right hands and a running elbow. He kicked Hogan, but with his injured knee, that's giving him problems. And the Hogan crowd we should mention the knee. The crowd is not that into this. Like we finally, during this point where Savage's knee this is getting point, worked we get over, macho chance. We yeah. get a macho macho chant, but otherwise they're not really into it. And part of it is that Hogan is a heel. Savage is still kind of a heel, and has been like. Hogan's almost lackey for the last couple of years, so it's it's a weird. Well, and they're trained that until there's a run in, there's not going to no, be a finish. No, you see, every, there's points in the match there. Everyone's it, it, looking. This is at a near everyone's fall. Looking, everyone's looking down the ramp, and it's not because anything's actually happening. But like you said, everyone is so trained that every Nitro main event that's hyped as a huge deal, world title match always after like eight to 10 minutes of action has run-ins that they're not, they're not buying any of this. Savage is fighting back with his one legged punches, which I loved. We talked about those in his match with Ric Flair from WrestleMania eight. The best. No, nobody does that better. Uh, In a different way. I'd say maybe Savage and Steamboat are the best knee sellers. Yes. Of anybody in, in modern wrestling history. Hogan cuts him off again, starts whipping Savage with Hogan's own weight belt. Hogan slams him, goes for the leg drop, but Savage moves. Hogan misses, and Savage gets the belt, starts whipping Hogan with the weight belt. This has got this the crowd. This fires the crowd up. Yeah, they're into this match now. Savage goes to the top rope, and the place goes absolutely nuts because he comes off, hits the big elbow, but he can't make the cover because his knee is too injured. So Hogan gets up, goes back to work, puts on the worst spinning toehold in the history of spinning toeholds, and then I the lazy Dory man's Funk, figure four. Dory Funk right now, he's got to be, what, deep into his 80s? Dory Funk would put on a better spinning toehold easily 
than uh, what Hulk Hogan put on right here. I just, you, you call it a lazy man's figure four. And yes, it's a figure four where you don't spin. You just cross the legs and fall back. But he actually had the, uh, the, the back of his opponent's ankle over their kneecap instead of under it, like yes. that previous episode of Nitro and that match involving our <laughs> He didn't execute so it properly, but the problem on the was sliding, like... On the sliding skipped. scale of Hulk Hogan figure fours, <laughs> this is a five-star figure four. If he didn't do the spinning toe holds prior, I wouldn't be so yes. angry to him not doing a spinning toe hold to get into the figure four. I was uh, just... Yeah, it's the awful. literal setup for the figure four that he just did, but then he skipped it to do his little version of it. Uh, so Savage sells the figure four, and he, like you mentioned, he's a knee seller like few can, and he's he's selling the figure four in tremendous fashion. This okay. is where the fans are immediately looking to the entrance, not because anyone is actually coming out, but because they've been trained to expect a run-in at this moment. Savage gets the ropes, and Nick Patrick makes Hulk Hogan break the hold. It's no disqualification. What are you doing? Yeah, I, I I hate that. I hated that here. Uh, he lets the hold go. Hogan's doing some choking. He throws Nick Patrick out of the way, as he should. That was earned yes. by Nick Patrick's poor officiating. Yes. Um, the disciple comes in, gives a neck breaker to the referee, and then they start double teaming on Savage. They post the knee of Savage. Hogan's yelling, I heard a snap. And a fan at ringside yells, snap into it. <laughs> and I howled with laughter. <laughs> this is also the point where the crowd is chanting, we want Sting. Sting will not appear. We do not see Sting, nor do we see DDP on this show whatsoever. D the disciple then puts the belt, the world championship belt, over his shoulder and hits his version of the Stone Cold Stunner, uh, the Apocalypse, on Randy Savage. And man, when you're in a wrestling war... And the hottest guy in the business is on the other side, and it's Stone Cold Steve Austin. Nothing says we are second rate like giving the disciple Ed Leslie Steve Austin's finisher. Nash then hits the ring. Bischoff is out. He's holding Nash's leg. Hogan tries to hit Nash with the belt, but the disciple gets hit accidentally instead. Bischoff then starts throwing some karate kicks, but Nash <laughs> no-sells it and knocks him out. Back leg front kicks, as Eric Bischoff would call it if he was doing commentary on, his, on himself here. Nash then hits a powerbomb on Hogan. Bret Hart comes out. He hits the ring and nails Nash with the title belt. Yeah, he teases everyone, thinks, oh, he's, he's here to do good things, and instead he grabs the belt, hits, uh, hits Nash with it, puts Hogan on top of Savage, and Hulk Hogan, now united with Bret the Hitman Hart, is once again the world heavyweight champion. But there's more. Here comes Roddy Piper. Yeah, because he should be angry because he said nobody was going to run in. And there's four guys who are not in this match in the ring currently. And uh, it was allowed, much like Tony Schiavone Muse, it would have to be because it was no, <laughs> no disqualification. disqualification. So you painted yourself in a corner there, Commissioner, with your with your logical rules. So you can't be mad about it. Uh, instead, he's stunned. He's stunned that Hart. He's asking, uh, why Hart? Why? Why? And then Bret Hart punches Roddy Piper. Hulk Hogan is the WCW World's Champion as the show goes off the air. The storyline behind all this, uh, and Meltzer says, believe me, this will change 
1,000 times before it ever happens, is that Hart is going to go heel, but will be involved in a long-term program against Hogan. The deal is that Hart is obsessed with winning the title from Hogan, but can't do so unless Hogan's the champion. So he's going to make sure that Hogan keeps the title until he gets a shot at him. Of course, Hogan will continually refuse to wrestle him. So that was the intended story, not how any of that ends up playing out or gets executed. And who could have thought it, who could have predicted in 1998 that Hulk Hogan would refuse to do business and would exercise creative control? It's just a shocking development that neither Eric Bischoff nor anyone in WCW could have possibly prepared for. We'll get to the whole show itself as we wrap up, but this ending segment, it was so infuriating because bringing Bret Hart coming off of the Montreal Screwjob Survivor Series 1997 in WCW should have been so easy. Nobody wanted to boo Bret Hart. Maybe beloved. more than anyone in wrestling history at that this point. This guy's beloved. All everyone wanted to do was cheer Bret Hart, see him win, see him be Bret Hart, see him do good things, win championships, and get the stench of Survivor Series 1997 off of him. So what does WCW do? They bring him in. He's the referee in what was it? Eric Bischoff and Larry Zabisco or something? Or, what, or was he the he was he was, he the, was referee. the referee in the, uh, the main event in the in the um, uh, Hogan Sting match in yes. Starcade '97. Yeah. So he's refereeing that. That's his big deal. And then he wrestles Bret Hart or he wrestles Ric Flair at Sold Out in January. Really good match. Did a surprisingly good number from WCW's perspective with Hogan not in the main event. They didn't think it would do well. And then he just disappears for a while. They don't know what to do with him. He kind of comes back. And then we have this here. Bret Hart is a heel with Hulk Hogan. Is there anybody in 1998 they wanted to see heel Bret Hart as Hulk Hogan's lackey? No. And then Hart as a heel, just like, just like having screwy matches over the U.S. title for the rest yes. of the year. Uh, well, this is DDP and, and other folks. And Booker T years. and guys like that. And this isn't like heel Bret Hart focal point, super entertaining in the sort of, you know, he's no. a heel in Canada. He's a face in the U.S. This is not that at all. Just no matter how much it's talked about, it cannot be talked about enough. How massively squandered of an opportunity uh, everything surrounding Bret Hart and WCW was. For how much money they were paying him, too, I couldn't believe that they would screw that up so Ugh, badly. God, it's, it's insane to think about. It's like the ultimate example of you you buy something, just because like, I have to have it, I have to have it, and then you get it, and you have no clue what you're going to do with it. So it was the big title matches that made the difference on this show. As Once again, the ratings showed that the total wrestling audience set another record on this night. So the highest number of people ever watching wrestling. And they were switching back and forth between shows in larger numbers than ever before. It's a flavor of the week that is now determining who's going to win. Last week's flavor of the week was the Vince McMahon and Steve Austin angle. And this week uh, was, uh, they they went back to that same thing again, Vince and, and Austin. Uh, one more time, but and they built the entire show around teasing a confrontation between the two, uh, but trying to get that audience back from the the previous week. But uh, going up against these two title matches, uh, coming back a week later, 
in the, it lost three full ratings points. Wow. Um, the Hogan Savage match um, took place with WCW going up to a 5.1 for the intros and then the early part of the match, while WWF fell to a 4.3 for their match. The final quarter saw Nitro, with the title match finish, do a 6.5 to wow. Raw's 3.6. So, in reality, a... Uh, solid win for WCW after several close weeks, but the ratings battle will be a dogfight uh, as it has been over the past month going forward, and it would be WWF who would take over and never give up that ratings lead as the Austin McMahon uh, and, and other uh, great uh, WWF programming and, and, and WCW mistakes uh, continue to... Uh, uh, to accelerate that. So WDWF well, will take over mis- from this point forward. Mistakes, even with the finish of this highly rated main event segment yeah. on Nitro. Yeah. You, you had a huge yeah. rating, but I guarantee you that didn't translate into more people wanting to Nobody see was that. Satisfied. No, there's no, no. It, it, Cause how many, t- it's not like this was the one time that we had a screwy finish. It's like, no. this is every time. Well, yeah. And not only a screwy finish, but a screwy finish resulting in something that no one wanted to see again. Bret Hart as Hulk Hogan's lackey. So, <laughs> favorite thing on the as, show, Adam? Can you find one? What's your oh, favorite thing? Oh, and, and and why is it Bill Goldberg? It's unquestionably everything Bill Goldberg did and everything Raven did. They were perfect. Everything with the flock in that match in that match was perfect. It was laid out perfectly. You could not have a better wrestling segment for what that meant to accomplish than what all those guys delivered. It was fantastic. It felt completely different from everything else on the show. Um, I honestly, outside of that, I hated this show. And I say that as someone who is a hardcore, was a hardcore WCW fan, you know, until the wheels fell off. And then I really enjoyed the last three months before the company died. But regardless, this show was everything that were sort of the worst inclinations of WCW, the constant unending talk about the main event stuff during other matches just never ending. There are at least six or seven matches that the announcers didn't even talk about as they were happening. Um, So many frustrating things on this show. So many things that may have worked in a vacuum on that evening, but were clearly part of, of, you know, the cracks in the foundation. Um, I, I did not enjoy the show outside of the Raven Bill Goldberg thing. And that makes me very sad as someone who loved WCW during this time. Yeah. So we're in agreement there that obviously that's the best thing on the show. And it's, it's, it's amazing that WCW turned into the skid and just leaned into it and said, like, yeah, yeah we're going all in on Goldberg. And they didn't screw that up. Yes. Uh, they would eventually do it. But, man, it, it's amazing that they went as long as they did without screwing it up. That's just yeah. a testament to the momentum and how, uh, how just the, the, the fans organically made something happen. And as long as you don't shelve it, like, could you imagine if, Goldberg just wasn't on TV for like three weeks. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, no, they, 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 they leaned into it. They kept going, but then they couldn't help themselves. And they, and they ended up screwing it up. They, they started messing with the, the Goldberg record number. Uh, they yes. started messing with uh, uh, the, 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 the formula until uh, actually defeating him. Um, and, and so. Well, it's whole- just like you, to your point, it's remarkable that that didn't happen earlier. And it's a testament to how, undeniably over he was in, in both in terms of ticket selling merch uh ratings because 
I mean, the Vipers were out in the locker room from the very beginning uh, looking to take him down, but it took till Starcade 1998 uh, for that to actually finally happen. Worst thing on this show, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, for me, the, the, the production not putting the ring announcer. Michael Buffer goes through the television broadcast. I yes. know they can do it. I know they yes. know where to plug the thing. In. It, <laughs> That's it, a very good point. That For Buffer, it was the way it should be. Yes. But for Benzer, it was not. So, for Benzer, it's not. I'm like, it, so you're consciously doing this. This is a, this is a yeah. production decision. It's terrible. It drives me nuts. Uh, so that's that's problem. Uh, that's the worst thing on the show, number one. And number two is, uh, uh, you're right, the announcers uh, talking about uh, and only pushing the, the main event stuff, but that, you know, I get that's a product of the, of the, the, the war and the times and the try to keep people from changing it, the channel. It is, but even this was excessive, even for that era. Like I remember them doing that, but I don't ever remember it being to the level that it was. Yeah. I think it, it's, was... it, it might be because this is the week that they came off the yes. list. And so yes. that's a hundred percent. Absolutely. Is that's the reason. Um, I think in ring, uh, in ring that Savage was in no shape to wrestle and Hogan no. had to carry that match. And that match was terrible. Like yeah, you, you saw what, perspective. what Hulk Hogan having to carry a match in 1998 looked like. It was not pretty at all. No. So uh, that, that was the worst thing for me. How about you? Yeah. in well, For me, it's the announcing by far because it made me absolutely hate the show. It was so excessive. So over the top. So, and they were just rehashing the same point over and over and over and over in every match, telling you, don't watch this match. None of these guys are stars. What they're doing is inconsequential. Whoever wins is inconsequential. All that matters is Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage later on. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that to me just took everything down a notch because, well, yes, there are some squash matches that were hard to care about. There was some action on the show, whether it be uh, the Booker T and match. Psychosis, the Cruiserweight title yeah. match, even the few, little bit we got of Ultimo and La Parca, that while it wasn't high-end Nitro uh, action, it was good enough that it wouldn't have been frustrating, but you just could not care about it because you had these guys screaming in your ear about the NWO and you know, which way will these guys go as if I'm supposed to care which way Brian Adams goes, whether he aligns with Hulk Hogan and the Disciple or uh, Randy Savage and Kevin Nash. And then the other frustrating thing was that we didn't get Singer DDP at all on the show, and they were big parts of the pay-per-view the night before. It's so weird. Uh, you, you could tell that they just were throwing out anything. Like the pay-per-view was like a, a, a hard stop, and now they're going to start a whole new program and story for everybody here and if you weren't involved in that story you weren't on the show and no. uh, it, and so that was uh yeah definitely just a uh a, a a not a great nitro but well it was also indicative it was of the times this is a oh, perfect time capsule sure. a product of it of its times maybe more than any show we've reviewed in any season um it was just very apparent that not only was this a reset show this was a panic show Maybe the first true panic nitro of the entire run of that that program, and then think how many times we'd see that down the line. All the resets, yep. new sets, new uh, new logos. You know, new guys brought in publicly to run the the creative of the company. This was a real sign of 
panic that I'm sure after 83 weeks, they had begun to think, well, we're the leaders now, just like the WWF had been for the last decade plus. Like, we run wrestling and we don't have to worry about it. We can just put whatever out there and then, oh my God, wait, they're, they're so live and they can beat us. What do we do? And this is what they came up with. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, we have other Nitros. If you haven't listened to those, they're in the back catalog right now, free of charge. Go back, listen to all those. It's evergreen content. It's new to you. Uh, just because we're in season four now, you can go fire up uh, the other Nitros uh, right after this and enjoy those like you, uh, like they just came out this week. So everything's evergreen content in the back catalog. Go uh, check that out if you want to support the show. Uh, there's a couple ways you can do that. The, the first one is uh, via our Patreon, patreon.com slash wrestling at random. There we put out bonus content every single week, even during the season breaks. So there's uh, uh, many, many, almost 100 additional episodes of this podcast that you've never heard sitting, waiting for you to unlock as soon as you subscribe over at patreon.com slash wrestling at random. If you don't want to go there to sign up, you can also get that same bonus content if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Right there, hit the subscribe button. That will unlock everything that's labeled bonus content in the Apple Podcast feed that you're listening to this on right now. All of it right there just by pushing that button. So you can unlock tons of uh, additional episodes and additional content there. If you can't support the show financially at this time. I totally understand that as well. The best way to support the show, free of charge, is to tell your wrestling fan friends about the show. Wrestling fans know other wrestling fans. So tell them about the podcast. Tell them how to subscribe to a podcast. Let them know that Wrestling at Random might be for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe you've got a friend that's as good to you as Hulk Hogan was to Ed Leslie, constantly getting him into spots here. Um yeah, I don't know. I can't imagine anyone could have that sort of friend relationship where one is so clearly the guy carrying things and the other one is just uh, carrying water. Usually those friendships don't last. So I imagine anyone listening doesn't have one of those type of friendships. But my God, was it in place here? All I have to say is at least this wasn't Starcade 94 where Ed Leslie was in the main event. At least we weren't building to that. Oh. It's the only positive thing I can say about uh, creative in WCW at this point. And again, follow the show and interact with the show via Twitter and Instagram at Wrestle at Random. You can also uh, watch this podcast on YouTube. The video yes. version of this podcast is up on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel there. Search Wrestling at Random Podcast. It will show up there for you. Uh, the links are available at wrestlingatrandom.com along with all the entire back catalog of this. But uh, yeah, if you want to we see should us. Note, we should know it. If you want to watch us on YouTube, the, the progression is the shows go up Sunday evenings on our podcast feed and the following day on Monday, the video content, the video version of the podcast goes up on YouTube. If you checked out our YouTube channel before uh, this season and you've just seen, you know, it's a static image and you hear the podcast, that has changed. To reiterate what Jeremy said, it is now on YouTube as a full video podcast for whatever reason. I don't know why. If you wanted to, you can watch Jeremy and I talk. Uh, that is apparently a thing people like to do, so go for it. Yep, so give us a, uh, a subscribe over at the YouTube channel, and you can interact with I believe there. they say smash that like button. <laughs> that's what the kids are doing. I believe that's what the kids say. And with that, we're calling it a podcast, so we're going to wrap it up. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Raven. Thank you, Goldberg. And thank you, absolutely no one else involved with this episode of WCW Monday Night. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you again next time.